As I mentioned a moment ago, we are in the midst of a series on women in the Bible that we're calling Fierce. The idea for this series came from a woman who wrote a book by that same title. Her name is Alice Connor, and she writes about women in the Bible looking at some of their remarkable stories about what we can learn from them and about how we might be inspired by them. It's important, isn't it, especially in this time? As I said a couple of weeks ago, I want my three teenage daughters to be able to have strong role models in Scripture, to be able to, to read there and to see themselves as valued, as loved, as having a voice. And so we're looking over these several weeks to see if there are women in the Bible that might be an inspiration to all of us. We've looked over the last couple of weeks at three women in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and now for the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at women in the New Testament. This morning, we are looking at a woman that Jesus encounters in one of his journeys outside of Galilee. He is approached by a woman whose name we never learn, only that we know that much like Rahab, who we looked at a couple of weeks ago, that she is a woman from Cana which means that she is not Jewish. She's a Gentile, which would have meant that, according to Jesus and all of those that would have been followers of his, she would have been seen as unclean. She would have been in some ways despised. But yet she approaches Jesus because she is in a desperate situation. Her daughter is being possessed by a demon. Now, as you hear this story, I want to warn you that Jesus doesn't come off looking too good in this story. But here now, this interaction between this woman from Cana and Jesus himself. Our scripture reading today is from Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. Here begins the reading. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. There is this great line, not exactly who said it first. It, some say it was Eleanor Roosevelt. Some attribute it to Marilyn Monroe. But it, it could have been this woman from Cana. And the line is this, that well-behaved women rarely make history. And we know that to be true. Here's this woman that talks back to God. Now, to be fair, back-talking God is a fairly long-standing tradition. 
In fact, we can see it throughout Scripture. Cain, when he was first asked about his brother's health, says, am I my brother's keeper with a smirk? The prophets, all throughout Scripture, when called to do something in the name of God, oftentimes say, who, me? You must be crazy. You must have me confused with somebody else. You might even say that the entire book of Job is about pushing back and saying, what are you thinking, God? How does any of this make sense? You could even look at Mary, Jesus' mother, who there they are at the wedding in Cana. They've run out of wine, and so Jesus, Mary implores Jesus to do something, but he only ignores her response, and when he doesn't, she makes him do it anyway, as a good mom might. I could go on and on and give examples of people that backtalk, that push back, that question. You see, I would argue that the folks that I just referred to, that I just mentioned, that I just lifted up, they understand something quite important. And that is that, that God can handle our complaints. That when we ask difficult questions, when we respond defensively, when we push back against God, God can handle that. And that's important for us to keep in mind because many of us grew up thinking that we could never question God. That we couldn't ever ask why to our church. That we couldn't have doubts or else we would, we would be told that our faith wasn't strong enough. But what we see over and over again in Scripture are good, honest, faithful people arguing with God. It's this false dichotomy, you could say, between faith and doubt. These backtalkers are not doubters because they didn't have faith in God and they aren't puppets. They're not just taking God at God's own word without questions. They question, I would argue, because they have faith or maybe even because they want faith. You've probably heard me say, if you've heard me preach before, that doubt is not the opposite of faith, but, but a very important element of it. That it's not a sign of a lack of faith, but a sign that your faith is alive. That sometimes we push back because we care enough about the relationship that we want to make it better. A good case in point is this Canaanite woman. This story, interestingly enough, appears twice in the gospel, which is sort of surprising because, as I suggested a moment ago, Jesus doesn't come across looking too good in either version. Matthew got this story from Mark, and he tells it slightly different with a little less nuance, but the story is basically the same. It's important for us to pay attention to notice that Jesus is on the move. Did you hear that part? He's in the region of Tyre and Sidon. These are Gentile cities, which means that he would have been on her turf. But still, according to his thinking, she was an outsider. Yet despite that, here was this woman who approaches Jesus and begins to speak with him, which women were not to do at that time. But she is so desperate that she goes and she begs Jesus to do something. Now, in the original Greek, that word beg there that is oftentimes translated that way probably isn't strong enough. One commentary that I read says that, that maybe harass is a better word about how this woman approached her interaction with Jesus. She harasses him until 
he heals her daughter, desperate for her to rid, for him to rid her of this demon. So you can imagine, can't you, what that feels like, that her daughter is being tormented and it's infecting not just her, but everybody around her. She is desperate to keep her child safe, to know that her child is okay. This last week on Tuesday afternoon, I was in my office working on this very sermon. I was reading commentaries. I was doing a a deep dive into this story when all of a sudden, friends and colleagues started texting me, letting me know that they were praying for us based on what was going on in Texas. I had no idea at that time, and so I turned on my computer and checked the news. And what I discovered were images of mothers, frantic, desperate, worried sick about their children that were locked inside their school, waiting for news, begging for them to be okay. But this woman in the story, this woman in the story, she knows where she can get the help that she needs for her daughter. Even though that there would have been miracle workers all around her, she knows, even as an outsider, as a Gentile, she knows that Jesus, Jesus is the one that can help her. Jesus and Jesus alone. And so she begs Jesus to help her. And at first, as you heard, he ignores her. And when he finally does respond, her His words are a little bit insulting. First, he says that that he didn't come for the outsiders, but for the insiders. And then he said, you know, it's not fair to take the bread out of the children's mouths and just throw it to the dogs. Now, in case that insult isn't quite obvious enough, the children here are the Jews. And the dogs, those filthy, bug-ridden, less-than-human dogs... Those are the Canaanites. But this woman, this outsider, desperate for her daughter's life, she pushes back and she takes that insult and she at first owns it, but then turns it around on Jesus. Dogs eat the very stuff that falls on the floor, Jesus. I'm so desperate that I will take whatever is left over, even the stuff that falls to the floor, because you're very special children. They're not using it all. They don't seem to be eating it all up, are they? Now, the text doesn't really say about what it was in her response that changes his mind, but Jesus in that moment doesn't about faith. And he commends her faith. He says, he says, your faith is great, which interestingly enough is the only time in all four Gospels that Jesus says this about anybody. Your faith is great, he says to this outsider, And tells her that what she wants, she'll get. And right then, her daughter is made well. Those commentators, those people that study this sort of thing that I was talking about a moment ago, that that I was reading on Tuesday afternoon, they're trying to make sense of Jesus' response, and they offer all sorts of different thoughts and interpretations, to be honest with you, none of which make me feel any better about Jesus in this moment. The most common, the most popular notion is that Jesus was just testing this woman's faith, which sounds to me, with all due respect, like sort of a jerk move. 
We're talking about this daughter's life here, the suffering of a human being. And there have been other people in Scripture, even other foreigners, who were healed without question. But this woman, this woman, he had to see if she was serious. Well, never mind that this leads to the idea that healing comes only when our faith is strong. You see, the truth is that I've known in 30 years of ministry, I've known, I've loved, I've presided at memorial services of many faithful people for whom healing never came. Just as I have known others with no faith in God at all that have come through the other side of suffering with barely a scratch. Now, I'm willing to bet. I'm willing to lay down my life to suggest that most of us have had our faith tested this last week. And most of us have in some way, shape, or form, we have pushed back. We've backtalked. We've cursed the darkness, maybe out loud. How the hell can this happen again, God? Whether it's out loud or under our breath, how? How can 19 children and two teachers be shot down in the midst of their classroom. Our hearts are broken for all of those people that are affected. It's hard for us to imagine the grief, the loss of those children and their teachers. It's even harder for us to understand the madness that can motivate this type of heinous act. But here's the other thing that I'm willing to bet, and that is that it is clear to everyone no matter where you sit on the political, on the ideological, on the theological spectrum, it's clear to everyone that we have a problem in this country. Some may even call it demonic. And like this woman in our story, we are desperate. We are begging for something to be done. Someone recently asked me, how my ministry, and in particular my preaching, has changed in the last couple of years on this side of the pandemic. And I thought for a moment, and I explained that, frankly, I have very little interest or desire to be provocative in my preaching anymore. There's so much in our culture that is dividing us, that is tearing us apart, that, that I'm much more interested in bringing people together than giving them a reason to disagree. I don't want to be provocative anymore. Prophetic, but not provocative. Now it's important for me to point out that prophets were oftentimes misunderstood, that even now we seem to have this un, unnatural idea of what a prophet was. A prophet in those days was seen oftentimes, we, we think of them as someone that would sort of predict the future. They were fortune tellers, if you would. But that's honestly not exactly what a prophet did. A prophet at that time would look at the situation around them through the lens of their faith, through the lens of their theology, and then be able to say, then be able to say, if we continue on in the way that we are going, this will be what will happen. Do you see the difference? Not necessarily fortune tellers, but more like truth tellers. Well, what I see from where I stand through the lens of my faith, through the lens of my theology as I look around, 
is a nation that seems to love and value our guns more than we love and value our children. That we are governed by leaders, many of whom seem to be more concerned with maintaining their power than protecting their people. That somehow we as a collective body have lacked the courage and the political will to do anything substantive to curb the violence that is all around us and is even killing our children. And until we do something about it, this sort of thing will continue to happen again. Matthew McConaughey, who is a bit of a legend here in Texas, at the 1010 service when I mentioned his name, someone whooped. I don't know what that means. But interestingly enough, he was born and raised in Uvalde. That was his hometown. And he released a statement in response to the events that occurred this week in his hometown. And he essentially called everyone to a a deeper and wider conversation. Here's what he said. He said, the true call to action now is for every American to take a longer and deeper look in the mirror And to ask ourselves, what is it that we truly value? How do we repair the problem? What small sacrifices can we each individually take today to preserve a healthier and safer nation, state, and neighborhood tomorrow? He went on to say that as Americans, as Texans, as mothers and fathers, that it's time that we reevaluate and renegotiate our wants from our needs that we have to rearrange our values and find a common ground above this devastating American reality that has tragically become our children's issue. And then he said this, that this is an epidemic that we can control. And whichever side of the aisle we may stand on, we all know that we can do better that action must be taken so that no parent ever has to experience what the parents in Uvalde and all of the others that have gone before them have had to experience. In times like these, isn't there, there is this immediate, almost knee-jerk reaction, driven by fear to sort of circle our wagons with like-mindedness to retreat into our enclaves of perceived safety to surround ourselves that think and look and act exactly like ourselves. But I would argue that it is in times like this, as people of faith, that we must be able to find the words that express our belief that God has better intentions for us, maybe even radical intentions. And that we might be a people who are driven instead by hope and not fear. That we find ways to to punch holes in the darkness so that the light can eventually shine through even when, no, 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 especially when it's difficult. Because if we don't, this sort of thing will happen again. You see, church, we have two choices. We can live in fear of our neighbor. We can stockpile our weapons. We can cling more tightly to all of our stuff and to our answers and to our rights. Or we can say, enough already. Our way is not working and we can beg God to heal us. Beg God to do a new thing in us and maybe even more importantly, through us. 
So may that be the posture of our hearts as we roll up our sleeves and work together to bring healing to this hurting world so that no mother ever has to beg for the safety of her child ever again.